The same boy washed up from the ocean then, as he had done every Friday morning for the past four years. The same one. As a lifeguard, it was my duty to ensure that the dignity of Blanc Sable's beach was maintained. So I did what I had done for the past four years. I marked the spot of the boy's death and sealed it off as per usual, and told onlookers to mind their business. They never saw what I saw. The face of the boy was the same. The same face every single Friday. My name is Tahir. I've lived in Marseille, a city in France, since I was 12 years old, when I emigrated from Libya. I moved because inequality, oppression, destruction, hatred, suffering, and every vice you can imagine ran rampant. Not only that, I was given the opportunity to move by God. I was an orphan. I never knew who my mother or father was. I only knew that they threw me away on the streets. I had to fend for myself for as long as I've known. My earliest memory before yielding pitch-black emptiness in my mind is myself. I'm three years old, being abandoned in the cataclysmic and barren streets of Libya by two people, who I think are my parents. I don't know what their faces look like. Everything after that is a blur of images intertwined to form the person who I am today. I remember that I encountered an orphanage house, if you can call it that, with many other kids without families like me. They were subjected to the neglect of people who were supposed to love them, just like I was. And in all of us, that stirred a deeply rooted hatred within us, towards ourselves for being considered unworthy of our parents' care, towards our parents for considering us unworthy of their care. Myself? I held that hatred of my parents for most of my life, even when I made myself a better life here in France. A part of me still held on to it today, before I made myself let it go. It was for my own benefit, and the benefit of someone close to me, that I replaced hatred with forgiveness and faith in forgiveness. It was a hot day one day, late January, I believe. The woman who was in charge of the orphanage had a planned surprise for us. We were to immigrate to France with the help of smugglers. The woman said that this was an opportunity to become free people. To be educated and fed in a country as great as France was an opportunity she asked us not to turn down. It didn't take much to convince me. My heart was set on the object of my desires my freedom. The other kids felt the same. Because every single one of those children and I were to journey to France with the help of those people smugglers. The journey was tough and taxing. Some of my roughest encounters with hardened and callous men took place during those days. But I wasn't treated as harshly compared to some of the other kids. No, I was even lucky. We were in transit on a shipping boat with conditions that were horrific. Corpses of previous migrants laid there. A room with harsh steel walls housed every single migrant. There were maybe 100 people there, or more. I recall one time, a little girl who looked about eight, had asked for some bread. This girl, she looked lethargic, with sunken eyes and a small forehead, and tiny, bite-sized fingers. Her bones were brittle, and she resembled the gaunt figures you see on weight loss programs. Still, she went up to the man who proudly wielded batons and assault rifles and asked if she could have some food. They responded with profanity and insults, called her a dog, an insect-covered animal, a pile of human stool and human form. Then they beat her half to death on the spot, 
for what seemed like an eternity, until bruises and cuts protruded every pore and nook and cranny on her body. Her face was swollen and streaming with tears. She defiantly yelled, I want a mom and dad, in a shrill, horrific, tortured voice, as they forcefully jammed the handle of their weapons into her face, drawing blood and eye matter. After that, I never saw her there again, at least not in our storage room. I don't know what they did to her. May God protect her. Of course, that wasn't the end of their depravity. Sometimes they tortured migrants too. Occasionally they let kids watch their parents die in front of them to taunt them. Then they let the kids die too. To get something as simple as some bread or rice, you needed to have a lot of money. So we were starved out in the sea for days on end. Eventually, with raging waters and storms threatening to stop our journey short, we arrived in France on the harbor of Toulon. Fishermen encountered us and notified the authorities. Back then, French immigration laws weren't as strict as they are now, so the kids and adults that were caught that day were taken to a center for migrants. Compared to the squalid conditions on the shipping vessel, this was paradise on earth. Clean water to drink, rooms with lights in them, beds, toilet facilities, and meals that were handmade. How fortunate were we that France allowed us on their lands. We can't even begin to describe my gratitude. From that point on, I was blessed by God that I escaped being sent back to Libya. The condition from authorities was that I was to learn fluent French and integrate myself into the French culture. I would be sent back otherwise. I was blessed that I managed these tasks. Some others weren't blessed. Those people who weren't blessed, all their dreams and hopes amounted to naught, all taken away from then in a flick of a finger. But not me. I made it into a new world. Some nights I wept tears of pain for them. I felt shame that I and a few other children and adults made it, but not all my friends. I still hold a twinge of guilt deep down inside. I'm glad I'm able to recognize it for what it is, guilt, but their failure to reach a new life drives me keeps me on my toes to not mess up, to work hard and be somebody worth investing pride in. Soon enough, I got permanent French residence, was accepted into a male boarding school in Marseille, and I studied as hard as I could to pass school, despite the usual tribulations encountered by being surrounded by guys every day. Not long after I turned 18, I took up the job I work at today, lifeguarding, at Blanc Sables Beach, the most pristine beach in the south of France. Now I'd like to tell you all of a recurring nightmare I've been having. To be truthful with you, it's not a nightmare really. It's real life. I think it's real, but it all seems dreamlike. Because every Friday morning, I encounter a dead little boy named Mahad. I've worked as a lifeguard in Marseille for close to all my adult life, when I first turned 18. Now I'm 25 and there are things in life which just manages to strike the chord in you, to coax out that tectonic layer of fear stuffed down and repressed in some sort of masculine facade of strength and security. The nightmare of Mahad is one of them. The very first day I'd turned 21, I'd checked in to do my shift of lifeguard work as usual. My sensitive and humanistic friend and colleague, Julian, greeted me with a hug and a warm smile. My other close friend and colleague, the gruff but kind-hearted Francis, firmly shook my hand and politely wished me a happy birthday. Of course, he sarcastically criticized the poor roster our boss gave us. 
Every Friday at the tick of 9 a.m., we were to arrive on schedule to Blanc. We were to perform a routine sweep of the beach to ensure nobody was up to no good, and that sands and water intersected at the right distance. Just so not too much water was now sand, and not too much sand was now water, if you know what I mean. It was the 20th of February when I had turned 21. The year was 2015. As I said, I met my colleagues to perform our sweep of the beach. I was feeling unusually empty inside, despite it being my birthday. You ever get a feeling of just... numbness? Like if you've done a terrible thing and you were about to get caught out in the act, but couldn't muster up guilt or shame? Or if you've been betrayed by your friend or partner, and you just... didn't feel an ounce of care anymore? That's the kind of numbness I felt that morning. I didn't know how else I could describe it. I think God was standing beside me that morning, telling me he would forsake me so, and that the enemy would taunt me in this way, that I would be subjected to the same image every single Friday morning for the next four years. Because what I was about to uncover would tear my world apart, asunder. We had completed the sweep of the entire eastern stretch of beach before heading over to the west of Blanc. Now the west and the east are decidedly different in visual stimuli. The east is unbashedly lush, green and vibrant with high-hanging hill points and shrubbery and trees that don't seem to fit in well with a beach. But the west is more cave-like, low-hanging near the sea, rigid rocky white and gray structures and cove entrances holding vast springs of water pepper the west and make it a dangerous point to access if you wanted to have a swim. Making the west more dangerous was that the ocean was behind it, and if you mucked up and left the sandy dunes or coves, you'd be swept away, just like that. With all that in mind, Francis, Julian, and myself all arrived at the west in Blanc Sables Beach. At the bottom of the cove entrance leading to a spring was a little boy dormant on the ground, facing upwards. The beach was just behind the boy, so we had to be careful in how we approached him, lest we got swept away. It looked like the boy was having a nap on the ground at first, but when we safely approached him, it was clear he wasn't. He was dead. Oh, what the hell? Francis muttered in disgust. We need to call the police. This little, this poor little boy, Julian in shock said in righteous pain. I didn't know why, but when I first saw the corpse of that little boy, I felt something stir deep within my soul like a tether that had been concealed with an invisible cloak, was now apparent within me. I felt a connection between me and that boy. When the demands of Francis and Julian for police didn't register in my ears, both of them shouted at me. To here! Are you okay, brother? Francis said loudly. You kind of spaced out for a second to hear. Do you have a suggestion on what to do since the police isn't such a good idea for you? Julian, shaken and unsure of himself, asked. Uh, no, no. Police is a good idea. Just go back to headquarters and call the cops. I'll stick by here and look after the boy. You can't be certain of what might be lurking out here. I said this trying to convey an aura of calm and poise, but I sounded anything but. I didn't know why, but I felt like a part of my soul was vested in that child. The image of him lying face up into the sky, brown, glossy eyes shining brilliantly almost brought me to tears. Francis and Julian could see I was becoming emotional, so they decided to give me privacy and head off to find authorities. I'm like a woman, I suppose. That's good. It's good to express what we try to hide. 
I must have stayed there, seated next to that corpse for over an hour. I was still stirring inside, like a river being rowed upon by a boat. Waves of feeling strode in me. I just felt like I knew that little boy. I don't know why. While I was there, I took the chance to analyze any clues about him and see if I could find out where he was from, what he was doing out there, how he died, and so on. I tried to do so gently without leaving DNA or fingerprints on his skin, so I touched him as carefully as possible. The boy looked to be pretty young, maybe no younger than a preteen's age. He was wearing blue shorts and a button-up shirt that was plaid in texture, with a red t-shirt underneath, the button-up that said in Arabic, Lion. Furthermore, he had a name tag written on with permanent pen. It simply read, Mahad, in Arabic. His name was Mahad. I also found in his shirt pocket a picture of a family, a woman with a long hijab, glowing brown eyes and wrinkles on her forehead, a small, mousy little girl with a gap in her teeth, the boy that drowned, and one man that looked to be in his forties or fifties with all that white facial hair. I don't know why, but it rung a bell for me, seeing the man in the picture. It was a face I saw in my dreams many nights ago, a face that I had tried to forget but never could forget a face of misery and pain unlike anything I'd ever seen before. I knew that face. I saw him, I promise. I also found a piece of paper. It, surprisingly, was completely dry. It was a letter from whom I have no idea. When I read the letter, it made me think of my life and everything I risked to arrive in France. The letter, translated to English from Arabic with my best efforts, went like this. Dear Mahad, I'm sorry, my son. I hate that our bond has to be across countries. I hate that these monsters enslave us and our friends and force us to separate from you to live a better life. I know the risks and accept them so that you can see your brother in France. Maybe, if the militants that control Libya allow it, we can see each other again. But as it stands, I can only promise you that I'll try my best to look after your mother and sister. I need you to promise me one thing. If God allows, you will find your brother in France and tell him of his family back home. Tell him that his father misses him. Tell him that you are in his care now and that he must do his best to ensure you get an education and make something of yourself. God is watching always, son. Don't forget us, and I'll always think of you in my dreams and prayer. When the migrant smugglers take you on their boat, do as they say. Do not ignore their commands and do not defy them. They are known to be brutal and murderous, and they are people who have little patience for those who are ungrateful. And one more thing. When you track down your brother, show him this letter in the picture. Make sure he understands who you are. Even if he doesn't get it, he will soon. That will be certain. Praise be to God for giving me you, son. I love you. Be strong always, and your mission will be complete, if God allows. Love, your father. I put the letter down, continuing to feel some feelings rise in me. Maybe I was just a little queasy. I was touched by the letter and what the boy went through to get here. His story was just like mine. Maybe that was what drew the connection between us. He was from Libya, just like me. Hours I just sat there, staring at the picture, then the little boy, then the picture, then the little boy again. Back and forth, like a roundabout in the road that wouldn't stop or like a merry-go-round in a playground, around and around. I was still in a daze, even with the cops now arriving with Francis and Julian. 
It took me a couple of minutes to get my head on straight, and the police still asked me if I needed medical attention. I declined, but I could have used it anyway. I felt a bit sick. Soon enough, police called coroners to take the body away. When they arrived, CSI said that they had quickly determined cause of death. The coroners told Julian Francis and I that the analysis of the body would be released the following day, since the cause of death was clear. As there were no external cuts, wounds, or external hemorrhages, they had already determined that the kid drowned. They would also be conducting DNA tests to find any relatives in France, and that would be released on that week's Saturday as well. In a way, I was glad that everything with regards to that kid wrapped up quickly, but obviously, I was hell wrong to think that. Later that night, I was dead tired. I had a long day of lifeguard work, which involved one woman floating out into the ocean unaware, and I was required to swim out and save her life. There was also some incident with a fight breaking out over a man spitting on a woman. Three men fought and one needed a neck brace at the end of the fight. I had to break them up. Beach fights are really rare in France. Oh, and while there was other small incidents as well, but my friends and I dealt with it. Typical lifeguard heroics. Anyway, when I got home that evening, I just wanted to sleep early. And sleep early I did. Right at 8pm, without having a bite of dinner. I'm used to hunger. Hunger keeps you motivated. When you wake up in the morning and you get that growl in your stomach, be it for food or a goal or a chance, hunger is what drives you. Personally speaking, I always slept without eating dinner before a day of lifeguard work, since it always ensured that I'd have a good feed in the morning, and would be fresh for the following day. I tell you this because not eating was a big mistake. I woke up at 3am, throat dry and stomach grumbling like the inside of a volcano. The moon was out and beams of moonlight shone upon everything visible to the naked eye, except a certain section of my house, the garage. I went to the fridge to get a fruit, and that's when I noticed movement. The movement instantly drove waves of fear into my spine. Was it a thief or something? No, it couldn't have been. The size of the intruder was far too small. I took a knife, stepped out into the yard to investigate the garage, and then right in front of me was just the black silhouette of something. I couldn't tell if it was about to rob me or have me for dinner, but I didn't care. I feigned as much bravery as I could and told the intruder to step out and show themselves. They did, and I swear to God I nearly jumped out of my own skin, because standing in front of me was the little boy who drowned, Mahad. I promise you, I was not tripping or having sleep paralysis or anything. The sight was surreal. Real, but incredibly surreal. The figure that stood in front of me was this adorable little boy with the plaid button-up shirt, blue shorts, and the red shirt with lion and Arabic scrawled on it. The name tag was on him with his name on it. I don't know why, but I swear to you, once I read that name tag, all fear in me instantly evaporated, and I grabbed a chair and sat down in front of him. I asked Mahad what he was doing here, what he wanted to tell me. We spoke in fluent Arabic to each other. To hear, it's me, your brother. The child spoke in a sweet, soft voice. I found you finally. Now we can talk for the first time. You're my brother? How do you know this? I asked him, tears in my eyes. We are one to hear. Just look inside yourself. Mahad spoke again, mousy voice cooing. I don't know why, but the connection inside me was speaking to me, telling me that this really was my blood brother. 
The coroner's DNA test was unnecessary. I knew it in my soul. You're my brother. But if this is true, who are my parents? Why'd they abandon me, little brother? I asked him inquisitively. He had answers that he needed to give me. Your parents are Ahmed and Iman, Abu Mahmoud. Your father, Ahmed, and your mother, Iman, left you alone at an orphanage after militants overtook most of Libya. They didn't think they could protect you the best they could. After many years, the horror in our country started to go away. Ahmed and Iman had a daughter, Elham, who they cherished. She died of malnutrition. They grieved their death and pleaded for God to help them in life. They buried her under rubble and stone and never got over her death. They were tormented by their fear and lack of certainty. Soon enough, I was born. And after that, Daesh took over our country. So when I was six years old, they told me to find you and tell you that they miss you and want you to forgive them. On the way to here, I died at sea, but I suffered still just trying to get here, just like you, my brother. I was locked in a room filled with kids looking for a new life, just as you were. I saw kids tortured, people at boiling water dropped on top of their heads. Food was never given to us. We had to use the floor as a toilet. I can tell you all the injustices that happened in those days, but it doesn't matter. We still died. One tiny little tear in the ship's body leaked water inside. No one could escape in time. Everyone was floating in the Mediterranean Sea after twenty minutes, maybe. The migrant smugglers, all the children, everyone drowned. No one survived. And I washed up on the beach where you were. It serves a purpose to hear. You need to forgive them. I thought about this for a second. I couldn't forgive them. What they did to me was too much. Why leave me alone? I was theirs. I could have shown them I was worthy of their love. I can't forgive them, Mahad. It's too much. You have to forgive them to hear. I need to be free to move on. There cannot be bitterness in the family connection. Otherwise, I'm stuck in time. I can't move on to the afterlife. Please find it in you, my older brother. Forgiveness is not weak. God forgives us so we can forgive other people too. Forgiveness is courageous. Forgiveness shows you have moved on from the past. I forgive our father for letting me die at sea too. It wasn't hard. It just takes time and it takes a choice. If you forgive our parents, we will become one again, and I can be free. The figure started to distort right in front of my eyes. I saw the boy start to turn into steam or smoke. He was slowly evaporating before my eyes. If you don't forgive them, I will always be a reminder. The figure completely evaporated. I just sat there thinking. Part of me was wondering, did that really just happen or am I just crazy? Another part of me held a curious introspection. Why couldn't I forgive my parents? Why couldn't I move on? We were separated by the sea, yet was it not possible that I could move on? No, I could never move on. It was too much. Moonlight was slowly starting to be replaced by sunlight now. I must have sat there talking to him for what seemed like a few minutes, but the time read 7 a.m. I guess time dilated when I talked with him, so that a two-minute conversation became two hours. It seemed that way, at least. You're probably wondering about the coroner's report. Yes, it was confirmed on Saturday that Mahad was my brother. DNA reports stated that there was a 99.45% chance of him being related to me. 
when my colleagues, Francis and Julian, heard about it from me. They looked stunned. Julian sympathetically kissed my cheek and apologized. Francis, ever the stoic one, looked me in the eye and looked down, and then put his hand on my shoulder. I told both of them that I wanted to forget it and get as much work done as possible. But the apparition I saw the previous night wasn't lying when he said the loop would repeat itself, because after working every single day until Friday of the following week, my colleagues and I saw the body of Mahat again. Francis and Julian reacted the exact same way they did the previous week, word for word, expression for expression. This only confirmed what Mahad was telling me. It was a time loop. To this day, the time loop remained. Every single Friday for four years, I saw the body of my little brother near the cove. It repulsed me, made me hate my parents more for deliberately risking my little brother's life, so... I thought, did they hate him like they hated me? I started to notice things about Mahat's body and possessions. The little tiny details about how he arrived at France would change every week. Sometimes he's positioned differently. Sometimes he wore different colored clothing. Sometimes his eyes were closed. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes he would bring a little toy car or book. Sometimes he had a few coins on his person. But every time he had that name tag on his shirt, that read his name, every time he had the picture of our family, every time he had the letter from our father, every single time. But recently, the other week, I felt my bitter feelings toward my parents subside, like rain clouds floating away to be replaced by the sun. I don't know how I can explain it. I guess it was just remembering seeing my little brother again that night, and sometimes I saw him in the corner of my eyes, reminding me to let him go, to embrace love instead of hatred. I suppose I finally took his words to heart. I looked at the picture of my mother and father, and no longer felt pain and anger, just sadness. I did love them, because I was related to them by blood, but I was sad that I couldn't let go of that bitter pestilence inside me, because who am I to hate the people that brought me into this world? I never really hated them. It was the 29th of November, 2019, at 9 a.m. I was greeted at headquarters with a kiss and a hug from Julian and a handshake and pat on the shoulder from Francis. We set off to perform a routine sweep on the beach. We arrived at the same location where the corpse of Mahad lay dormant, but this time there was no corpse. Hey, Julian, Tahar, Francis called out. Come check this out. It's a picture. We ran over to Francis holding a picture of people seated around a table. He gave it to me and said, It looks like you in there next to the dude with the white facial hair. A younger you. That's a damn fine coincidence, isn't it? Creepy. To here's a time traveler, Julian said in jest. If he only knew. All I could do was smile, because in the picture was my parents, my dead sister, Mahad and I smiling. I guess I had truly moved on. And in the corner of my eye was Mahad waving and laughing at me. I saw him evaporate into a puff of smoke that steadily rose into the blue and white sky. He was ready to join God in paradise. I suppose I learned something very important from all this. Forgiveness is not something that is constant. Maybe people choose to forgive someone who had hurt them out of their own goodness because they don't hold grudges like unneeded weight. Maybe people don't forgive other people and they move on. Maybe people require those that have wronged them to right their mistakes in their eyes to move on. And maybe forgiveness is something that you have to earn. 
For me, I learned that forgiveness is a choice you make. It can be achieved inside of ourselves. We just have to choose to bury our bitterness under six feet of soil made of compassion and look forward to a better life. Moving forward and not staying stuck in anger is hard, but it's worth it. Time helps with forgiveness and so does life's lessons. Take them all in and always have compassion. Yes, I was ready to move on with my life because I had learned what forgiveness truly is. Maybe one day I could see my mom and dad again and show them that forgiveness in person. Thank God for this. Peace to all of you that listen. I hope you find it in your heart to forgive someone. When my mom passed away, I was the sole one responsible for cleaning up her house. I don't have any siblings, and I didn't know my dad. As far as I knew, he was dead. So it fell on me to handle her affairs. I'm not the most organized person, so I have to say, it was a pretty intimidating task. I started with usual stuff, getting her affairs in order, taking care of the funeral arrangements, everything you have to do until the body is buried. After that, it was just a matter of going through all of her stuff piece by piece. To say my mom was something of a hoarder would be an understatement. Okay, so she was hardly reality TV worthy, but she hung on to a lot of junk. It was overwhelming going through everything, but I won't lie, it felt nice. Each little trinket was a memory. Even the tattered doily she saved brought back warm feelings of my childhood Halloweens, when she would lay it out on an end table where we kept the candy bucket. I spent a few days going through all of it. She had a shed in her backyard, a sizable thing where she kept most of her knickknacks. It was cold in that shed, holes in the side of it letting in the freezing winds. I wore my thick jacket and worked into the night, just me and the twin sounds of wind and shuffling boxes. Before long, I let my mind wander to the loneliest of my task and the decreasing light outside. I hadn't even realized it was getting so dark, and I kind of freaked myself out thinking about the wind whistling through the holes in the walls. I was more drained than I realized. There were plenty of boxes still to sort through, but only one left on the ground. Determined to finish this one and then enjoy my night, I lifted the lid and was pleasantly surprised. Inside was my old Nintendo and stack of games. Now I'm hardly a gamer. I have a current console, and I use it for one series that my friends and I play regularly, but that's about it. As a kid, we didn't have a lot of money, but I remember my mom splurging one Christmas and getting it for me. I only ever owned a few games, and I played the hell out of them. I remember my days bunny hopping in the Adventure of Link, and was really confused when they changed the gameplay for Legend of Zelda. A friend had to tell me that Adventure of Link actually came second, which blew my mind. Link was the main character. Why wouldn't they title the first game after him? I had five, and I remembered them all too well. The warm feeling of sitting in front of our TV coming back to me as I pulled them out of the box and slid them out of their sleeves. That satisfying sound of plastic scraping against plastic, bringing a smile to my face. Final Fantasy, where I spent hours trying to perfect the right party. Adventure Island, which I always replayed just to use the skateboard. Ninja Turtles, which I beat as every character. There were five that I remembered so vividly, so I was surprised when I pulled out a sixth game. The cartridge was black instead of the usual gray, which seems like it should have sparked my memory right then and there, but it didn't. It didn't help 
that the title on top of the cover had been worn away, leaving me with just the art. As I stared at the image of a sinister figure clutching a tombstone as he rose from an open grave, it came back to me. I used to play this game every day. I had enjoyed it because it was kind of dark. It felt like a forbidden thing that I shouldn't have been allowed to play. The whole thing took place at night, and I remembered having to explore a dark castle to kill a demon. Thinking about it, I couldn't recall exactly what made it so dark, because it wasn't like Final Fantasy didn't have skeletons and monsters. That really annoyed me. It's like trying to remember someone's name that you see every day, but it's stuck in the back of your head. For something that I played all the time, it was unacceptable that I couldn't remember more than first entering that imposing castle, let alone the title of it. Right then I decided to try it out again. I wanted to relive those glory days, find out what I'd forgotten. In my head that castle was an imposing sight, fully realized in beautiful graphics. Part of me just wanted to see how much of my memory was tainted by rose-colored glasses. There were two old CRT TVs in the shed, but only the small black one worked. I set it down on a bar stool, plugged it into an extension cord, and ran that along the floor to the only power outlet in the shed. I got the Nintendo hooked up too, attached the AV cables to the TV, the controller to the console. Everything powered on just fine. I stared at the fuzzy penguins on the TV, a little joke my mom and I had that the static looked like a bunch of jumbled up fuzzy penguins. I pressed the channel button until I switched over to channel 3 and was met with a black screen. I was feeling kind of excited as I pulled the cartridge from its sleeve. It reminded me of Christmas morning, getting a new game each year. My mom was always so happy watching me unwrap it. She always knew just what I wanted because she'd bring home old issues of Nintendo Power from the houses she cleaned. And I'd tell her stories about all the cool games I saw. Of course, I was always behind the times on the cool new games, but I didn't care, because I loved what I had, no matter if everyone else had already played them. The lid popped up with a satisfying click, the springs squeaking ever so slightly. The mystery cartridge slid in, plastic scraping the sides of the machine, chipset clicking in. I pressed down, pushing the game into position, and hit the reset button. Nothing happened. I was still staring at a black screen. Panic rushed through me. Not a real or earned panic, but panic all the same. The thought that I might not get to play this game, after forever go without being able to remember the title, filled me with existential dread. It's hard to let stuff like that go without it nagging at you forever, or at least for an extremely annoying day. I breathed and told myself it would work pulling out the cartridge and doing the same thing every kid with a Nintendo was all too familiar with. I blew into it. It looks like you're trying to play it like a harmonica, but it gets the job done. Lo and behold, I popped it back in, pressed the reset button, and the screen flashed as the game booted to the title screen. It was just an image of that imposing castle. How could a game not include its title on the title screen? It didn't make any sense. There was only one option on the main screen press start, so I pressed it and was met with an ominous beep. Music began, a bass-filled chip tune like an operatic orchestra. I'd never heard anything like it, didn't even think it was possible to make something that wasn't high-pitched on an 8-bit system. The screen faded out with a pixelated wash of colors. There were no text boxes explaining my quest. I was just dumped right into a forest. 
My character looked like an average person, just wearing plain pants and a t-shirt. He looked nothing like the typical fantasy heroes, knights in armor or Belmonts carrying whips. I hit the right arrow and my character started walking. While I checked out what my buttons could do, A jumped, but B did nothing. My character didn't seem to have an attack. I didn't remember jumping on enemies to kill them, but then again, I didn't remember much of the game at all. There was a white square at the top of the screen that sat empty. For a NES game, the forest was creepy as hell. It started with a low layer of fog across the ground, an impressive effect for the time it was made. Bats flapped towards my character and he ducked underneath them. The further in he got, the worse the forest became. Skulls hung from trees, candles in their eye sockets burning away. Headless skeletons burst out of the ground. I hit jump and my character landed on a skeleton, managing only to hurt himself. That obviously wasn't how I killed things. He hopped over the rest and continued along the path. I was expecting a boss, but the character reached the edge of the screen, and it went black, and the music stopped. Pretty anticlimactic. But I was in for a treat. This was what I remembered. The music came back, low and moaning like Gregorian chanting as my character approached the massive castle featured on the title screen. The drawbridge lowered as my character approached. I felt uneasy stepping across the wooden bridge. The music stopped, unsettling me, as all I could hear was the wind creaking through the holes in the shed and the trees overhead whipping the roof. The screen changed as the character stepped past the gate, and then he was inside the castle, greeted by a terrifying digital screech of pain. The noise almost made me stop playing the high pitch at once grating and frightening at the same time. It felt real, like the developers had digitized an actual recorded scream, but more than that, I could feel the pain behind it. I depressed the right arrow button and continued trudging on. The castle was nicely lit, almost welcoming if it hadn't been for that scream. There were no enemies at all. The level continued scrolling until I hit a staircase, and the game took control and sent my character down the steps. The screen transitioned out into a courtyard full of tombstones. It was a veritable graveyard, with a spooky tree that reminded me of the spindly-limbed oak in my mom's backyard. A set of tombstones ripped themselves up from the earth and stacked together into a walking sepulcher. The music roared with a tune fitting for a boss. The walking tombstone monster spewed bones out at my character, which had a startlingly hard pattern to avoid. I could already tell that this was one of those games that didn't go easy on the player. I hoped maybe it was just one of those obnoxiously difficult first bosses, because I didn't really feel like spending all night in the shed. It didn't take me long to get into the swing of things, though. In fact, it felt like muscle memory in action, as I deftly dodged all the bones without taking a single hit to my character. When the first barrage was finished, I noticed a flashing bone left behind on the ground and walked my player over it. Voila, I had my first weapon, a bone icon neatly filling the white box at the top of the screen. I pressed B and launched a bone in a downward arc. It smacked the tombstone boss, and its body flashed bright white for a moment, satisfyingly marking a successful hit. Each salvo gave me a single bone to hurl at the boss. I missed once when the thing started flashing red and changed its attack pattern, adding a jump into its repertoire. But otherwise, it was a perfect run and the boss finally crumbled before my character. A grave was left unearthed in the ground. Certainly they wanted me to go inside. But my instincts told me to stay put, because who would hop into an open grave? 
but the game didn't give me a choice because it took control of my character again, and he walked over, jumping right into the hole. The screen turned black, and level 2 appeared on the screen. My character dropped down into a dark cave. Right away, I noticed that something was very off. I was in a dungeon, not all that different from ones I'd seen before, but the decorations were very advanced, and far more detailed than what I thought possible. Chains lined the walls, torture instruments too. I had to jump onto a pillory and use it as a platform to reach a higher floor. I couldn't shake how dark this felt for a NES game. Robed men carrying whips charged at my character. I had to duck beneath their attacks and then jump over their heads to continue. My character barged through a door and I continued on as normal. The candles lighting the dungeon walls grew dimmer with each passing step. There were dark splotches of purple on the walls that I could barely make out, which I took to be an artistic choice to add depth to the otherwise blue tones of the dungeon. Then everything faded to black except my character. I waited, jumping in place like I usually did whenever I had to wait for a game to continue. The boss appeared faintly at first, blinking into existence. Then he flashed onto the screen, fully visible and horrific. Despite the pixel art, I could still tell that this giant man was supposed to be an executioner. He was covered in bloodstains and wore a black hood. A tremendous axe was in his hands, dripping with little red pixels. The background came back on screen and my eyes went wide. Even by today's video game standards, this wasn't tame. There were severed heads and viscera everywhere, gutted bodies hanging up on chains. One person was still alive, his legs missing, his torso disemboweled. And yet I saw his sprite screaming out and clawing towards the screen, as if begging for me to help him. The executioner laughed. I was in a bit of a daze and took some hits from the boss, but I got his pattern down quickly. I had to run forward whenever he jumped and slammed his axe down to get underneath the weapon. Just like the tombstone boss, each impact of the axe would create a flashing stone pickup on screen that I could throw at the executioner. It only took six hits to kill him, and the whirlwind attack he added when he was close to death was dodged by simply ducking. My character walked off screen, and text flashed again on a black background, telling me I was on level three. It looked like I was still in the dungeon, but things had gone from bad to worse. I realize now that those purple blotches I'd thought were shadowed bricks were actually bloodstains. The torture devices were filled with squirming people, their digitized voices begging for release. The enemies looked like more of the same torturers, but dressed in leather armor instead of robes. However, I soon realized that their outfits were scandalously made of straps, and they appeared to have their genitals exposed, as well as they could be by 8-bit graphics. Whenever one of the enemies approached me, if there was a torture victim between him and my character, he would whip the victim. Chunks of flesh would break off in showers of blood and little pixels representing their skin landed on the ground. Exposed bone would be left behind from their flensed skin. I accidentally hit B when I meant to jump, taking a hit from a guard as he ran into me. Then I realized my weapon square was filled by a bone icon. The torture victim my character had been standing in front of had a hole in their leg where their femur used to be. I almost felt disgusted when I realized I had been the one to rip it out. I kept going, throwing the bone at one point, just wanting to get it out of my character's hand. 
I needed to finish this level. I needed to see how far this game went. I couldn't imagine it getting much worse, and yet, I was starting to remember bits and pieces here and there. The dungeon seemed familiar, and I even thought maybe I remembered the torture victims. But my young mind hadn't processed what was actually going on, or how terrible it was. What I found most alarming was the thought that my mom wouldn't have allowed me to play such a game. It took me longer than it should have to make it out of the dungeon. I was distracted by the sprites actively being tortured in the background art, being stretched out on wheels and burned alive, or shoved into Iron Maidens. But I got through it all and reached the end of level 3, grateful that there wasn't a boss waiting for me. What was there was so much worse. Level 4 started with a pair of sprites, two flesh-toned characters I took to be humans, but one was massive. The giant one was thrusting into the smaller character. I wrenched in disgust as the big creature stepped away from the small one, leaving it a pile of gore. It laughed and ran away, and I finally had enough. I turned the machine off angrily. It was too much for me, went beyond the realm of a video game and into pure tastelessness. I flicked the light switch and went to the house. I needed to calm down a little bit. My adrenaline was pumping. I felt like a little kid seeing something completely forbidden. It was probably how I felt when I actually had been a kid playing that garbage game. After having a drink, I got online and started doing a search. I tried maybe three dozen permutations of search terms, anything I could think of to describe the game or the cover art. I wanted to find out what it was called once and for all, but nothing came up. I'd found stuff this way before, but no matter how many details I gave, nothing came up that matched. I would get Castlevania or games like that, articles about games banned for violence and sex, but nothing similar to what I'd just played. It was like the game didn't exist. That got me thinking that I had something special on my hands. Maybe it was greed, but if this game was one of a kind, some ultra-rare cartridge that next to no one knew about, I could make some decent money to help pay for all my mom's expenses. I saw a picture of us together on her mantle and smiled at it. I never realized how odd it seemed that the corner of the picture looked like it was missing someone. An hour passed, maybe, and I went back to the shed to retrieve the game. I stepped inside and flicked on the lights. The TV came on instantly. Weirdly enough, the NES did too, without me touching anything. The game booted to the start screen. I stepped over to turn the machine off. But before I could touch the controller, there was the same ominous beep I had heard when pressing the start button, and the game began. I thought that maybe it was playing a demo, like how a lot of those older games used to do. The problem with that theory was that the character on screen wasn't moving. He just stood there in his yellow shirt and blue pants, right where I had left him. Curiosity forced my hand, and I picked up the controller. As I expected, this level got even worse. The torture became sexual in nature, sprites in the background forcing themselves on others in masses of pixelated flesh. The enemies appeared to be nude women bound in bondage gear. Their limbs twisted so that all they could do was walk towards me and make anguished groaning noises beneath their masks. About halfway through the level, I was given a whip and used it to attack the bondage women. But it had the opposite effect than what I expected. The enemies squirmed and writhed when they were attacked by the whip, then just kept coming as their sprites reddened with blood. 
I jumped and dodged the rest of the way, trying to ignore what I saw in the background and just focusing on reaching the end. A boss awaited me, the same big man from the beginning of the level. He was fast and constantly laughing every time he charged my character. He would lash out with a whip occasionally just to throw me off. I dodged, but no weapons ever appeared even after a minute of this. The more I stared, the more I noticed my character. It was just odd how unremarkable he was for a video game character. Brown hair, yellow t-shirt, blue pants. I looked down. It was actually exactly what I was wearing. In my distraction, I got rammed by the boss. But this wasn't a normal encounter. Normally, my character would flash, bounce back, and then be controllable again. This time when he touched me, the boss grabbed me and pushed me over. I lunged forward and turned off the console just in time to avoid the image on screen. I breathed a sigh, utterly traumatized. Then the game came back. I had been staring at a black screen, and now my character was standing there like nothing happened, being laughed at, and the boss music was coming through the TV's tiny speakers. I leaned forward and turned off the TV. The button clicked beneath my finger and the picture faded away. I couldn't believe my eyes, but the TV turned back on too. It had to be something up with the wiring, I told myself. There was no other explanation. This time I had a weapon in my hands. I noticed my health had a sliver left. Acting quickly, I pounded the B button, throwing daggers at the boss until he died. It was over, and the game moved on to the next level. But I'd had enough. I hit the power button on the console, but the light remained on no matter how many times I pressed it. I did the same to the TV, but it wouldn't turn off. I tried unplugging them both, but they stayed on. By this point, I was breathing heavily and completely freaked out. I pulled the AV cables out of the TV, hoping that would stop it. Certainly there was no way for the console to display its image on the TV if there were no cables connected. No such logic there. I got up and switched off the power to the shed. The lights turned off and for a moment I felt a rush of relief. But I saw the glow on the screen out of the corner of my eye and knew it was still on. Angry now, I popped open the lid and pressed down the cartridge, fully willing to just rip the thing out, but the mechanism wouldn't release. It was completely stuck. That was fine. I, I could just leave it on and let it sit. I didn't have to play. Except my character started moving, even though I wasn't touching anything. I watched him travel through a short dungeon corridor, expecting horrible things. Surprisingly, my character reached the end, where a bright light was shining. He stepped through and was back outside. Maybe it was a stupid idea, but I picked up the controller. I wanted to see what was coming next. It looked like the start of the game, but I assumed it was a new area. I didn't walk far before I approached a house. Not a medieval house, but just an average, modern, suburban home. I grew up in a house like that. A house like my mom's. In fact, I was at that house right now. I walked to the door and went inside. It wasn't just like my mom's house. It was her house. The walls were painted the same. The furniture was the same. I swear there was a picture on the mantle that even looked like the two of us together. There were no enemies as I explored the living room. I noticed toys scattered on the floor, trucks and blocks. The TV was on playing fuzzy penguins. 
The toys moved as I walked through them, taking them out of the way. As I approached the TV, a dark shadow on the wall behind it twisted and moved until it jumped into the shape of a dark figure with curved horns and sharp claws. The shape skittered along the wall, then jumped out towards me, crushing the toys on the ground. I ran, fearing for my life. It was artificial, but I felt like I was in real danger. The screen changed, and I entered a bedroom. It was a child's bedroom. Walls papered with dinosaurs, more toys scattered across the ground. One toy in particular stood out, a teddy bear with its head ripped off. I looked over my shoulder at the open cardboard box of stuffed animals I had sorted through earlier that evening. My ripped-apart bear sat just on the edge, barely in my view. I shook and looked back to the TV. As I approached the virtual bear, the toy lifted off the ground, the body first, and then the head. The head twirled around in the air for a moment, and then reattached itself. A moment later, the bear grew in size, or maybe I shrunk. The shadow creature's claws burst out of its hands, ripping through the top of its head. It chased me back the way I had come. The screen transitioned, not to the living room this time, but to a hallway. I found myself walking towards an open doorway. Outside, a female sprite was crouched down and crying, her face in her hands. I thought this was odd after everything else I had seen. In fact, the whole thing didn't make sense. But at the time, I wasn't really thinking about it. I just braced myself and entered the room. It was a bedroom, darkened save for a bolt of lightning coming from outside the window. The flash of lightning illuminated the shadow figure sitting sullenly on the bed. The room returned to darkness, and then another bolt filled it with lasting light. This time, the shadow took on the shape of a man, completely normal-looking. He looked up at my character, who was looking more and more like me by the second. Even composed of simple pixels, I could tell the boss was glaring at me. He threw down a glass bottle which broke, and then stood. I tried to move, but my sprite was frozen in place, just like I was as I watched the boss approach. I was definitely smaller than before, and shrinking still, becoming no taller than a child. I watched as the boss removed a belt from his pants and held it tightly in his fist like a whip. He approached me, appearing to reach for the front of his pants. I wasn't sure if it was to hold him up or hold him down. Still frozen, unable to think, unable to breathe, I watched in horror as the boss grabbed me and the screen faded to black. A tear ran down my cheek as I listened to the sound effects playing in the background. The crack of a belt, a child crying. The darkness faded, and I realized I had control again. The boss was sitting on the bed facing away from me. I had a knife in my hand. I took a step forward, clenched my teeth, and pressed the B button as hard as I could, relishing it as the knife flew into the boss's back and killed him in one hit. He fell on the ground, blood spilling across the floor. The screen faded to black and credits began to roll. Within moments, the background changed to the cemetery from the beginning of the game. Someone was digging. It was the crying woman, and she was shoveling dirt out of an unmarked grave as the boss lay dead beside it. Above them, the crooked tree loomed ominously, a crow nestled in it. I tried to make sense of the words on screen, but the names were garbled nonsense, 
I didn't care about solving this mystery anymore. My trembling hand reached for the power button on the console. This time, the thing turned off and stayed off. I pulled the cartridge out as quickly as I could, putting it in its sleeve and shoving it away in the nearest box I could find. I packed the NES in with my other games and left the shed with the box in my hands. I couldn't get away from that shed fast enough. As I stepped outside walking towards the house and the light from the back porch, I stopped by the old spindly oak tree, dead and missing all its leaves. I stared at the ground by its base, watching and waiting as if I expected something to happen. I closed my eyes, my whole body shivering, and then ran into the house. I still never learned the name of that game. I stopped looking after that night. I never opened the box, I put it in again. Just donated the whole thing. Playing that game reminded me that there were some memories better left buried. Thank you for making it this far. I'd like to encourage you to subscribe if you like my content. If you'd like to follow me and want to be involved in what I'm doing slash talk to me, follow me on Twitter or Instagram. If you'd like an offline experience, check out the podcast, The Midnight Podcast. And if you're at all inclined, I've got some merch out there to be purchased if you'd like to support the channel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next video.